Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Today we're continuing our series on prayer, and it's leading up to our network conference. Please sign up, please come to those evenings. And what we've seen is that to pray, we pause, we rejoice, we ask, and we yield. And I want to recommend a book to you that I'm drawing a lot of out of uh, for, for this series. And it's the book, How to Pray by Pete Grieg, who is the founder of the 24-7 Prayer Movement out of the UK. It's a great book and uh, offers some of the most helpful, down-to-earth, practical explanations and tools for how to pray. So I really recommend that if you're a bit like me and prayer is a difficult thing. So the acronym that we're following comes out of that book, and I think it's a great way to summarize the structure of the Lord's Prayer, which of course is Jesus's master teaching on what prayer is and how we do it in the kingdom of God. And so last week we saw that prayer begins with pausing before God. And then as we address our prayer to God, our Heavenly Father, as we sang in our song this morning, our Father, we're speaking from a place of acceptance. We're speaking as sons, and that brings forth adoration, worship. It brings forth thanksgiving out of our hearts. And so first we pause, then we rejoice. And so we're going to read... Our scripture this morning, which is the single verse, we read kind of the, the preamble to Jesus's great prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and today we're going to begin with the first couple lines of that prayer. Matthew 6 verse 9, so Jesus has already told us to pause for the sake of sincerity before him, and then he goes on in verse 9. Why don't we say these words together? He says, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. We're going to leave it at that today. Now, we've all just said that here. Hopefully you've said it online and in Bethlehem. How many times have we said those words? I mean, how many times did we sing those words even just this morning as we sang together? In fact, they might be, the words of this prayer might be the most often repeated words in the history of humanity. Isn't that a cool thought? They very well may be. And I think exactly for that reason, they've become over-familiar. To the extent that they've pretty much lost almost all of their meaning to us. So I want to zoom out a little bit as we get into these over-familiar words and look at what are they? What is it? And essentially what we have here is a poem. Jesus offers, when he he teaches us about prayer, he offers us a poem. And it's absolutely genius when we get into it. I love seeing the genius of Jesus as he teaches us. So this is a poem that it's a prayer, but it's more than a prayer just to be memorized and repeated, although there's value in that. He doesn't just say, pray this. He says, pray like this. This is how you should pray. And so, This is a pattern, I believe, for prayer as a whole. And 
prayer, as we've already seen, prayer is all about intimacy with God. So what this is really, it's a pattern. It's a, it's a, it's a tool that Jesus gives us to say, this is how you become intimate with God. It's all right here. In 66 words, in the English translation anyway, in 66 words, Jesus unearths all the treasures of prayer. It's absolutely brilliant. And so we're going to, as we get into this, we're going to see that it, this is, it's not only a great poem, but this is the perfect summary. There's no better summary of Jesus's mission, Jesus's ethic, Jesus's vision of the world and reality. It's all contained in here. And we're going to see how, how can all of that be in just 66 words? Well, the first thing we have to see, this is the first point, is this. You pray what you believe. You pray what you believe. Everyone, you may, not think of yourself, you may not think of yourself as a theologian, but every single person is an amateur theologian. Every time you think a thought about God, it's theology. All right? And our private expressions towards God, our private prayers towards God, are an expression of our beliefs. Not so much what you're consciously believing, but when you examine the things that you actually say, the, ways that, the, the things that you emphasize in your prayer, it's a reflection of what you actually believe versus what you profess. And so when we study the Lord's Prayer, I believe we're looking at Jesus' own prayer. He's not giving us something that he himself didn't practice. We're seeing the fruit of his own life of prayer and intimacy with God. And so this is a a reflection of his own beliefs. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, and we're here gathered as disciples of Jesus, that's the whole point of us getting together. It's, It's important for us, it's essential for us to know what he knows. To learn the mind of Christ. To believe what he believes. Why? Because he is the truth. And so if we want to have intimacy with God, we need to see reality as Jesus sees it. And this is how he gives us insight into that. He gives us not just a prayer to recite, but a pattern, a a map for prayer that aligns us with his viewpoint. And what Jesus knows as reality, that is reality itself. So he gives us a poem. It's easy to memorize, but then he says, this is how you should pray. This is a tool. And what's cool about it as a tool is that you already know it. Most people already are very familiar with this. So it's great. You don't have to work very hard to memorize it. Most people, if you live in our part of the world. So It's not only a prayer to recite, but what it becomes as you do that, it becomes an outline for your own prayer. And one of the most powerful things that you can do as a a practical tool for prayer, and we'll get into this more, I think, in other messages, but one one of the simplest and one of the most powerful things you can do in your prayer life is to begin to use this, not just as something to recite, but use every line of this as headings, to expand on with your own words, your own prayers. And so we're going to get into that, but all of the great teachers on prayer through the history of the church have, have said to do that. Use it as headings to 
uh, or, or you could think of it as an, as an on-ramp. Each, each of the lines of the Lord's Prayer are like an on-ramp onto this great highway of prayer, and you can just join into the traffic and flow. And so as you expand on each of the sections that Jesus gives us, what you're doing is you're learning Jesus's priorities. You're learning his desires. And so as that happens, this is our next point. As Jesus's prayer becomes our prayer, his reality becomes our reality. As this prayer becomes your prayer, the mind of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the reality of Jesus becomes your reality. And so we want to ask, as we, as we begin to use this as a pattern for our prayer, what are the beliefs that Jesus has that we see coming out in this? That we're expressing as we pray this. And, and this, is, this blew my mind. I, hope, I think it's going to blow your mind. So in 66 words, this little poem expresses... A few minor things. It expresses what Jesus knows about the nature of reality. It expresses who we are. It expresses what our purpose as humans is. It expresses what's wrong with the world and how to put it right. In other words, this, this, is, this is an encapsulation of Jesus' entire worldview in seven lines. So, It begins with an address. This is who we're speaking to, our Father in heaven. And then it's followed by this perfectly balanced six petitions, six requests. Three oriented towards God and three oriented towards our needs. There's this great balance. And what's cool is you begin to see that, you know, when someone asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing to do to obey God? He said, love God, love your neighbor. Right? And you see his ethic built into this prayer. There's a perfect balance. Three times we're saying, Your glory, your kingdom, your name, and then it's our bread, our sins. Protect us. And so, even as we look at this simple address today and the first petition of this prayer, what we're going to see is three things that Jesus knew that are reflected in this prayer. And then three ways that we're transformed by the prayer of rejoicing. So last week we paused, this week we rejoice. So let's look at these things. So first of all, if we pray what we believe, well, we already saw that. We we, we pray what we actually believe. And this address and this first petition shows us three things that Jesus believed. And the first thing that he shows us is his view of Reality. What is ultimate reality? When you look at studies on prayer, and there's lots of actually, you know, secular kind of scientific sociological studies on prayer, but if you, any book on prayer that studies the practice of prayer throughout the world, you find out most people pray. Most people admit to praying. There's a few historical anomalies called secular humanists that, that would say, I never pray. But the vast majority of people throughout the history of the world have prayed in some form or fashion. And at the most basic level, I think prayer is like an instinct. It's a, it's a response to us experiencing some sort of reality that we, we sense is bigger than ourselves. It's responding out of the reality of our everyday lives. And, and when we pray, we're, we're sending it out there. We're, we're speaking out there. 
You know, it could be the simplest thing of like, you know, your team is, is, is right at the goal line and you say, please. That's a prayer. And they score and you say, thank you. That's a prayer. And so we, we just kind of instinctively send it out there. And so the most important question is, what or who is out there? As we send our prayers out into the heavens, what or who is in the heavens? And so the address of our prayer matters more than anything. And so we have to ask the question, what is ultimate reality? Where are we sending these prayers out to? And there's lots of different answers to that question. Some say that ultimate reality is just the material world. Some say it's an impersonal force that you call the universe. Some say it's a, it's, it's a realm of spiritual beings that we have to make sure we're always keeping happy or they make our lives very difficult. And there's lots of different answers. And each of those answers has a completely different impact on the entirety of the rest of your life. So what does Jesus think? Jesus sends his response out to our father. Jesus addresses his prayer to our father. So he's saying reality, ultimate reality. Jesus is a philosopher, by the way. You should know that. Ultimate reality at base, it's not just material. It's not just an impersonal force. It's not a disinterested deity. Ultimate reality is our father. Ultimate reality is personal, loving, and relational. And I think that matches up best with the evidence of this desire that just bubbles up out of us to speak to something. That doesn't make any sense if reality is just material, if reality is an impersonal force. You speak to a person. You speak to something that can listen, something that can hear. And so you can sum all this up. As we pray our Father, we're declaring with Jesus this, ultimate reality is a community of self-giving love. Ultimate reality is a community of self-giving love. This is the Trinity. Those are the words of of St. Augustine, at least attributed to him. The community of self-giving love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the fundamental reality of, of existence. And if that's true, it impacts everything. And I think actually it fits best with how we experience the world. To pray like that, to pray our Father, it's a declaration of of a different reality than everything else tries to define around us. Some say, like we said, ultimate reality is just the material world. Well, if that's true, then your prayers, the deepest cries of your heart, your demand for justice and beauty and goodness, when you send them out there, They're just going into the void. There's absolutely nothing there. Jesus says, no, reality isn't like that. If the universe is ultimate reality, some kind of impersonal force, and maybe there's karma or something like that, when my prayers go out into the universe, 
The universe doesn't care. It's not listening. And if you speak about it like that, all that you're doing is you're you're smuggling in this idea of personality. It doesn't actually fit with the idea of just a universe. And I don't think that fits how we actually experience life. We speak out as if something can hear. Jesus says, no, reality is not like that. What we're saying, (laughs) Jesus says, reality is not spirits all around that we need to make sure that we give them what they want and we placate them or they make life difficult for us. They're out there to just punish us. Reality isn't like that. Reality is a father who is personal, who's loving, who desires to know you and wants the best for you. That is the ultimate reality behind everything. The heavens are not empty or impersonal. The heavens are full of the glory of God. There is a father in heaven. And that changes absolutely everything. And so the second thing that we see Second thing we see that Jesus knows that's reflected in this prayer, in this prayer, because God is a father, what that means is the only true prayer is the prayer of a son. The only true prayer is the prayer of a son. Now, Jesus says our father, and you may have heard it said before, it was, it was not common to address God as father in Jesus's context, but there is some precedent. Some of the rabbis would call God our father. There's a few mentions in the Old Testament of God as father. But what's really mind-blowing here is not, not so much just father, but it's the fact that Jesus is probably using the word Abba. He's probably using the word. It's translated from the Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken. And he says, Abba. Now, Abba, it's used in the Middle East today to refer to your father, but it's this, it's this affectionate, this loving, this intimate word. It's almost like, it's not really a fully fledged word. It's kind of like a a semi word. It's like when your, your, your baby kid says dada for the first time. That's, that's the sense of what Abba is. It's this babbling of a child's heart towards its father. And so Jesus is saying, when you're praying, when you say our father, our Abba, you're declaring yourself to be a son. And what do I mean by a son? It's, it's not, we're not talking about gender. We're talking about Jesus in his context, a son in the ancient world. When you're a son, you're an inheritor. You're a carrier of the family name. And so Jesus, what he's doing here, when we, when, we, when we combine this with the context of the rest of the passage, what we looked at last week, he's, he's contrasting the difference between pagan prayer and prayer in Christ, Christian prayer, Christian prayer. You're declaring yourself to be a son. And the contrast is this, pagan prayer, it's like a business relationship with God. It's, it's like talking to God as a landlord versus talking to God as a father. So when you have, you know, if you've ever rented a house, and I'm sure all of us have lived in a rented house at some point, if not, congratulations. But if you've ever had a landlord, maybe you had a wonderful, warm, loving relationship with your landlord. But any landlord I've had, I kind of hoped I didn't ever have reason to see them. 
Because if I see the landlord, it's because something's leaking, something's broken, I need help, I haven't paid my rent on time, something like that. In other words, I only contact the landlord when something's wrong, when I need something, right? Now, if I'm on time with my rent and something's leaking and I call the landlord and they fix it, I'm not particularly grush, you know, gushing with gratitude because that's his job. I've paid my rent. Your job is to make sure the house isn't falling apart. Right? When, you know, so when they, when they respond to me, I'm not particularly grateful. But also, if I reach out to them because something's wrong and they don't respond to me, what do I, I, I get upset. I get angry with them because, hey, what are you doing? I did what I was supposed to do. I fulfilled my end of the bargain. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Now, that is completely different to a family relationship. When you are in a house because you're a part of the family, when you're a daughter, when you're a son, you're not there because you paid your rent. You're there because you're part of the family. You're not starting from a place of performance that is conditional upon performance. You're starting from a place of acceptance. Right? And so what that allows you to do is when your dad gives you a treat, when your dad does something for you, you can actually be grateful. Because it's not about you've earned it. They're doing something good for you. They're doing something nice for you. When, 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 they, when they don't answer you, you're, you're not all of a sudden angry because, you know, I'm not receiving what I deserve. It's, it's a relationship that's unconditional because it's based on love. It's based on acceptance. And so... This is the difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer. I'm not using pagan as like this this evil thing. I'm just saying non-Christian prayer and Christian prayer. Pagans cannot pray like Christians. Christians can, however, pray like pagans. (laughs) Why? Because we we can get all full of ourselves in the house and become, you know, spoiled brats before God, basically. And treat it as if he's our landlord and not our father. And so, we can say the words, our father, that Jesus tells us to pray. And we can pray them as if we're doing some wonderful, magnanimous act. And that God owes us something if we pray this every day. (laughs) But when we pray this sincerely, when when we bring ourselves before God and we say, Abba, Father. We're declaring our relationship to him as his kids. We're declaring a relationship to him as beloved sons. We're starting from a place of acceptance and not performance. And so that changes absolutely everything. I mean, you start to see how brilliant Jesus is in two words. Changes the entire landscape of prayer. The entire landscape of humans' relationship with God. And so there is a father in heaven. You know, we've only looked at the first four words here. (laughs) Now, when you begin in that place, the most natural thing to come out of you is gratitude. It's rejoicing. And so that is the proper response to the reality that there is a father in heaven who loves you and has called you son, 
has called you daughter. We rejoice. And so that's why we, we, we begin by pausing in God's presence, but then as we begin to speak, what pours out of us is rejoicing. It's gratitude, it's adoration, it's worship. And so this is the heart of the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. What in the world does hallow mean? This is not a word you ever use, except at Halloween. (laughs) And that's another indication of just how completely lost the meaning has become to us. Okay, Halloween, it's a shortening of All Hallows' Eve. It's the, it's the night before All Saints Day. That was a feast, the history of the church, that I would love to redeem, by the way. There, there's a Christian history to Halloween that's been totally lost. But in ancient times, what was believed was this was the night of the year where the, the separation between the physical and the spiritual was at its thinnest. And so, you know, that's what led to the, the whole stuff about ghosts and all that stuff. But hallow, hallowed, simply means Holy it would actually be kind of helpful to translate it as holy. But I don't think we understand holiness very much better. What is holiness? And the best example I can think of is this. Okay, it's to do with sports. I love basketball, always played basketball. I was a big Michael Jordan fan as a kid, all right? I got to see him play his last few games at the Wizards. Amazing. All right, however, imagine, and you can, you can fill in your favorite sports star, whoever it is, all right? But imagine... You get to meet your hero, right? I would have gotten to meet Michael Jordan, right? And I, I give him my basketball and he signs it, right? Now, I'm not going to take that basketball and go to school the next day and play with that basketball. I would be an idiot, right? I don't go and take it and play with it. I take that basketball, you know, I, I very carefully don't touch the part that's signed and I put it on the shelf, I put it on the mantle in the middle of my house, and Selena would love that. And, and, you know, I would put it there and virtually never touch it so that people could see it, so that people would appreciate it. I would set it apart from all of the other common basketballs of the world and set it in a place where it can be adored. <laughs> now imagine further, if it wasn't just any old basketball, it was the, it was the very one that he shot his last shot that won his sixth championship at the Chicago Bulls. That was the basketball. Imagine how much, now it wouldn't just be on my mantelpiece. Now it, it would be in a museum. It would be in a, in a glass enclosure with lasers around it protecting it because it's so holy. It's set apart, right? It's precious. It's worthy of your awe. It's worthy of your admiration. It brings to mind all of the greatness that is contained within it, right? It evokes a name of a great player. (laughs) And so when we talk about God's name being hallowed, being holy. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about, this is something, this is a name that is the most precious thing in all of creation. It deserves to be set up high that we would look at it and we would be filled with awe, that we would be filled with adoration, with thanksgiving, that we would be absolutely overwhelmed with how wonderful it is. That's what we are talking about when we say holiness. 
And God is not just holy. He's among all the things that are holy. He's holy, holy. And among all all the things that are holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. (laughs) Three times. There is nothing holier than God. And his name is, is, is him. It's his, it's his name. It's his representation that goes out into the world. And so when Jesus says that we should pray for God's name to be hallowed, he's asking that we would treat God's name like that. That God's name would be treated just like that. He's declaring that the most valuable thing in all the universe is God himself. And so when we pray like that, we're making a statement of God's absolute value. God's absolute uniqueness and beauty and preciousness. Why would we say that? Because, and this this is the third thing that I think Jesus knows that we come to know as we make this our prayer. In a finite world where all good things come to an end, God is the only good thing that never comes to an end. That's the only proverb I've ever written. (laughs) I like it. God's the only good thing that never comes to an end. And you say, well, okay, why are we asking that his name be made holy? Isn't it already holy? It is. So what are we asking for in this prayer? And I think we need, we need to zoom out to see this. All right? Let's look at the whole story of Scripture. God created the world so that we could know him and enjoy him, which brings him glory. When sin entered the world, our relationship with him was broken. And what happened was we began to love created things rather than the creator. We began to love the common basketballs more than the signed heirloom. (laughs) In other words, God's name was no longer holy to us. We unhallowed his name. His reputation, therefore, has been trodden on. It's been destroyed in our hearts. His name is not in the place that it should be in the world. And so it's been unhallowed. It's been made unholy. And what happens as we pray this prayer? What happens is we begin to be transformed and we, as we begin to rejoice in his name. As we begin to put his name in the place that it should be, we become transformed. And so the first thing I said, it's three things that Jesus knew and three ways that we're transformed by this. The first one is this, that prayer restores our reverence. When we pray our father, it restores our reverence. We're praying as Jesus prayed our father. And so he's restoring our broken relationship to God, the father. We're praying as his sons, as his kids. And so that is both, it's unthinkably bold to say Abba, Father, to the creator of the universe. Unthinkably bold. And yet it's also this unimaginably holy thing. And so at the same time as it fills us with warmth and love and, 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 and intimacy, it fills us with awe, with wonder, with glory. 
it restores our awareness of ultimate reality, which is a holy God who's our father. He's unimaginably powerful. He's unimaginably wise and he's unimaginably holy. And yet he calls us his kids. That should blow our minds every single second of every day. And we need to pray this. This needs to become the pattern of our prayer to wake our hearts up to the reality of that. I love this morning when Josephine here in Mukunji, she was encouraging us to, to, to stir our hearts, to stir our emotions, to worship this great God that we worship. And you know what? We have to do that. This doesn't always, you know, some days you're just filled with the, the joy, you know. But most of the time, guys, you, you, we need to stir ourselves. This is why we start our services with singing. It's not emotional manipulation. <laughs> It's stirring our hearts up to what is actually true, to what's actually reality, but which our hearts are are so divorced from by sin. We're waking ourselves up. You know, the, the, the Psalms say, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. And so the same way we need to say, Bless the Lord, oh my soul. We got to preach to our souls and stir up our hearts because you know what? We should be excited about this. Hallelujah. (laughs) Amen. Prayer restores our reverence. We regain the intimacy that we were made to enjoy with God and, and, but also the reverence that comes with that because, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of, of, of a little kid, right? Every small child adores their parents. I know the world is broken and imperfect, but, but you, I think you see this even in, in the most difficult of circumstances, there is a love and a reverence that a child has towards their parents that is there. And, and it's, it's pure and it's precious. They think the world of them. They long to be with them. They treasure their time with them. And when we pray to our Heavenly Father as sons, it produces a reverence in us. It produces this, this awe, this, this desire to thank him, to worship him, to adore him, to bow before him. And I think the deeper we receive our identity as dearly beloved children, the greater desire we have to be with God in prayer. The more we receive that truth, the more desire we have to be with God in prayer. And so if I'm not feeling that, the problem's not with God. The problem is with my emotions, my affections. And so the second thing that prayer does is that it reorders our loves. St. Augustine wrote about this at length, and I greatly encourage you to read him. But he talks about the fact that we, we, we love all sorts of things in the world. And that's, that's the basic problem of humanity is that we love the wrong things. It's not that they're wrong. It's not that sex and, and, and you know, money and power are, are evil things. It's that we love them too much. We love them in the wrong order. We love them rather than loving the creator. And when we put the wrong, the wrong fuel in our, the, the, the tank of our hearts, the, the engine starts to break down. It disintegrates. And so prayer reorders our loves. As we thank him, as we worship him, he begins to become holy to us once again. 
if sin divorced us from the way the world really is, if sin divorces us from reality, as we pray to God, as we come to him as sons, it begins to reorder our lives. It puts the love of the greatest thing back in its rightful place. We begin to love the creator over the creation. And so worship reorders our our loves. And what's happening there, I mean, did you ever think about this in the Lord's Prayer? This is what Jesus is doing. He is reversing the entire disintegration of sin in the world. Right in this prayer, because he's reordering our hearts to worship the living God. It's reversing all the effects of sin. This is his whole mission. This is our whole purpose. So we're going to get into that in future weeks, but, but the third thing that we see here is that prayer redeems our calling. It redeems our calling. Because as we pray this prayer, we become participants in Jesus's mission. We become participants in this good news that's going out, this, this gospel, this kingdom that is slowly overcoming evil with good. Because who is doing the hallowing? We hallow his name once again. We are the ones making it holy through our lives, through our words, through our, 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 our stories, through our lives. We are doing the hallowing of his name. And because this is the thing, until God's name becomes the greatest treasure in our hearts, we will never be satisfied And the world will never be right. Until God's name is made holy and precious as it is, the world will always be broken and our hearts will always be dissatisfied. So as we close here, here's what I want to do. I want you to examine what your prayer the way you pray, the things you say, the time you spend, what does it say about what you actually believe in your heart? Do you relate to God as our heavenly landlord or as our heavenly father? Are you praying out of sonship or are you praying with a a renter's mentality? Because this is the good news that Jesus proclaims as he teaches us to pray. He says this, because God is our heavenly father, we pray not as fearful tenants of an angry landlord. We pray as his beloved children. And so we begin from a place of acceptance. You are accepted in him. Therefore, we can rejoice. We can thank him. We can enjoy the holiness of his name. Let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize that we can only pray these words because of you. It's in you that we can say, Abba, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus, would you awaken our hearts to the reality that God is the ultimate thing. He is the ultimate reality. 
that we can approach him as sons because of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus, on the cross. Holy Spirit, come and transform us from the inside out that that the name of our Father would be made holy in our lives and that the whole world would, would once again discover the beauty, the holiness, the preciousness of that name. Lord, we ask you all of this in the holy, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.